Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by Dennis Rasmussen, um, who is the author of Fears of a Setting Sun, The Disillusionment of America's Founders. Um, And this is like, you know, catnip for me. Um, I was so excited to read this book um, because I'm always curious about learning about the founders and from another perspective. Um, This is published uh, by Princeton University Press in 2021. And there is a lot of primary source documentation um, in this book, but I'm going to let Dennis tell us about that because what he has done is looked at the primary founders and seen where they were concerned or disillusioned with the United States that they essentially had a hand in creating, particularly at the Constitutional Convention. Um, but I'm going to let Dennis tell us a little bit about that. I'd like to welcome Dennis Rasmussen to the podcast and ask him to tell us a little bit about himself and how he came to this particular project. Hi, Dennis. Hi, Lily. Thanks for the the invitation. This is great. Um, So I'm a political theorist. Before working on this book, uh, most of my career up to this point had been on the Scottish and French Enlightenment. So Adam Smith, David Hume, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Montesquieu, Voltaire. Um, and I hit upon the idea for this book um, almost by happenstance, I, I, just as a kind of hobby. Like many Americans, I've, I've long enjoyed reading, you know, the big popular biographies of the founders that seem to come out almost every year, the, the kind that academic historians tend to deride as founder chic. Um, but it struck me uh, as I read them that, you know, the stories are generally meant to be inspiring and uplifting. And yet the endings were rarely very happy. Um, and, and came to realize that by the end of their lives, almost all of the leading founders ended up being rather deeply disappointed in the government and the nation that they'd helped to create. Um, this seemed like a you know, sort of obvious point to pursue. And I was shocked to find when I, I started to look around at the scholarship on the period, um, I was shocked to find that no one had really done this in a systematic way. Um, so I decided to have a go at it myself. And once I did, once I started methodically going through the founders' letters and other writings, um, disillusionment was really just all over the place. So I'm not, I, I don't think I'm pulling at strings here or, or inferring disillusionment from a few stray comments. There's just this vast historical record attesting to their anxieties and, and even despair about the country's future, which is all the more striking given that they're, right, they're all keenly aware that everything that they wrote would be poured over by posterity, right? Their letters are constantly saying, well, when future generations look back on this time, right? And yet their growing disappointment in what America had become wasn't something that they even tried to hide. So for each of them, there are just dozens and dozens of letters and other writings, um, if not hundreds in the case of John Adams, in which they bemoan the fate of the country, often in these really sort of overwrought, almost hysterical terms. And so... Yeah, I, I, just given the perennial interest that Americans have in the founding and their founders, it, it strikes me as amazing that this isn't 
better known or more talked about that this is the first book on this topic. And and you go through systematically um, and you're looking at, as you say, a lot of these letters that they were writing um, at the at, towards the end of their lives. I mean, they all wrote letters all the time, obviously, because that's how they communicated with one another. Uh, but that, as you note, the the works that they were doing at the at, towards the ends of their lives were really sort of punctuating this kind of concern and almost grief with like, will this actually work? Um, and so can you talk a little bit about, you know, not only that sort of coda at the end of their lives, but like their hands in creating the Republic, which was something that they were all keenly aware hasn't always worked. Well, sure. They, they knew that they're, you know, they, they themselves called it an experiment, right? An experiment to show that, Republican government could work on this large scale after thousands of years of, of failed attempts. Um, so they knew there were lots of, of um, kind of obstacles in the way of what they're doing. And we often celebrate them for that today, right? They're kind of taking on these odds and, and trying to do this new unprecedented thing. But I think it was all just a lot more frail and fraught and contingent than we we remember in retrospect, um, many of the founders who we think of as the, the greatest champions of the Constitution, even at the very outset, were, were very um, worried about it, right? So Hamilton and Madison, who are the two chief authors of the greatest defense of the Constitution ever written, the Federalist, are both at the time when they're writing it, they're pretty disappointed in what came out of the, the Philadelphia Convention. So we don't, you know, sometimes think about that side of things. Um, one of my favorite little um, sort of vignettes in the book is from Adams, when Adams had just assumed the the office of the vice presidency, the, right, the first vice president, and he moved to New York. And he writes to Abigail, back, who, who's still back in Massachusetts, and, and he's urging her to come to New York and, and live with him th there. And he says, look, we have to, to think no more of Massachusetts and make New York our home for the next four years, assuming that is that the government lasts that long. Right. So they're not even sure that the government's going to last four years. Right. We, in retrospect, it's now lasted whatever, 230 plus years. And so we assume, of course, they knew this going in, that this is going to be this thing that would, would last for the ages. But they had no idea. Right. The Articles of Confederation had lasted seven years. They have no idea if the Constitution's going to last that much longer. And so, yeah, I think there's just a, a sense of contingency and, and uncertainty and peril hanging over their every move in a way that we, we sometimes forget. And and so in terms of looking at this this peril this this instability and again I you know I I, I always talk to my students about Federalist thirty seven where Madison is really making this argument for the need for stability that's going to come from these longer terms and so forth but that they have gone through a period of great instability and republics themselves haven't always been stable. Um, so sort of, can you at least mull about, um, the idea with regard to creating a Republic that they hoped would be stable, but that they feared might not be? Sure. And look, I, I think there are different founders fall in different categories here, right? So Jefferson, I think, was the least worried about instability, right? He's famously, oh, a little rebellion now and then is a good thing, that, that type of mentality, um, which I guess in some ways was easy for him. He's off in France while everybody else is, is living through 
the fecklessness of the government under the Articles and Shays' Rebellion and the like. Um, So, you know, some of them have more and some have less concern for stability. But certainly the Federalists, right, the Washington, Hamilton, well, if we want to count Washington as a a partisan, a Federalist, um, Hamilton, Adams, Madison certainly in his kind of 1780s incarnation, but I think even in the 1790s Jeffersonian Republican incarnation, all have this concern for stability because they've read their history, right? They know that the whole history of Republican government had been one of instability, right? This is the great theme of Federalist 9, as the the old republics of Greece and, and Italy and so forth were, you know, unstable while they lasted and they didn't last very long. And so, yeah, they're trying to find ways to build in uh, a kind of sense of order and continuity, and yet still also room for flexibility within the system. And, you know, it was a trick where, the, and, and this is part of where, where their disagreements came. You know, Hamilton thought if we're going to have this kind of stability, we need basically as close to the British system as possible. We need the president and senators to serve for life once they're elected. And, and you know, that's one way of assuring, you know, continuity. But sometimes in the 1790s, Adams said, you know, eventually we're going to have to resort to hereditary rule, that elections are so dangerous, such fraught moments, you know, we're going to have foreign influence and all these things that eventually, you know, with he thought within a couple decades that they would have to introduce hereditary rule, again, maybe for senators and or the presidency. Um, so, yeah, they, they, I mean, they go to different lengths in how far they think, or, or they think, they, they have, they feel like uh, different things are needed to inculcate the stability, but they all, all, all are looking for some way to do it. Because again, the whole history of Republican government has been one of instability. Um, and and you, you, you've addressed in the book the folks that you refer to as the sort of key founders um, who also ended up having some concern, great concern, um, Washington, Hamilton, Adams, and to a lesser extent, Madison, and, and but Jefferson's also in there. And so you, you sort of span Federalist and, and the Democratic Republicans in terms of where they come on partisan sides. Um, but why, you know, again, obviously some of them were president. Hamilton never was, but clearly, uh, you know, a sort of key founder in terms of the Constitution. How does this arrangement of founders sort of fit together in our understanding, not only of the Constitution itself, but of this concern with how it was going to work? Well, so I, I picked the figures I did mostly because they're the biggest names. I, I think we usually think of the big six founders. So the one I don't include is Franklin, Benjamin Franklin, because he only survived to see the government formed by the Constitution in action for a single year. So he didn't really have time to become disillusioned. Um, and other than that, I, I tried to focus on the, all the biggest names. Um, as you know, there's one little chapter, a tiny, I call it an interlude in there, just a few pages long, where I suggest that, you know, you could tell a similar story for most of the other leading founders who lived long enough, who lived into the 19th century or even well into the 1790s. So I list, if I'm remembering off the top of my head, I think it's Samuel Adams, um, John Jay, John Marshall, Patrick Henry, George Mason, James Monroe, Governor Morris, 
Thomas Paine, Benjamin Rush, right? There's this huge list of, of other founders who, you know, I could have told the story through them too. Um, the ones I picked are the, again, the best known, the most documented, and as I'm sure we'll get into, each has a kind of theme along with their disillusionment. And I, I use them to, to tell the story of not only the individual, but the, the theme, the kind of the different reasons they all became disillusioned. Um, so, and I, I picked them as I did, you know, partly because of their fame, partly as you suggest, they, they straddle the Federalist and, and Jeffersonian Republican divide. And then I, I order, arranged them in the way that I did basically by their deaths, right? So that I could kind of tell a chronological story where Washington dies in 1799, Hamilton in 1804. Um, I guess I flip Jefferson and, and Adams that <laughs> Adams died, uh, you know, or no, Jefferson died a couple hours before Adams did on the same day. I flipped them so I can keep the Federalists together and, and you know, the, the Republicans together. But still, you know, and then Madison at the end who lives all the way to 1836. So I tried to tell the story, you know, through the individual thinkers, through their themes, but also a sense of chronology in there too. So that's that's what I was going for in the, the choices I made. And I did want to ask you about the the different kind of understandings and concerns that each of these framers had um, that you sort of um, are able to elucidate in your reading of their later, you know, their later works, their later conversations, their writings, their papers, their letters in particular. Um, And to start with Washington, who many of us know had his famous, you know, farewell address where he, you know, he voices what he's seeing as a concern as he's walking out the door. Um, But you also talk about the fact that he had been a kind of reluctant president. Um, And can you talk about how his reluctance and his concern for partisan factions um, all come together, but that he's still so devoted to the country? Yeah. Okay. I'll try to fit all that in. So yes. Yeah, so the, the we, um, right. So his fears about partisanship are are well known. Um, in part, as you say, because of the farewell address. Now we often read the farewell address as almost a, a a kind of worry that oh one day this might happen to the country. Watch out because this this is something that could happen in the future. I think it's better read as a lament about the ills that he was sure had already beset the country because this you know from the time if he's leading the Continental Army during the revolution, he's constantly warning people about what he calls the demon of party spirit. That's the title of one of my chapters. Um, but of course, parties emerge pretty much right away, right? The America's first party system emerges within a couple of years. You know, you can argue over the dates, but within a couple of years of, of um, the start of the new government, obviously it's led by a pair of bitter enemies within his own cabinet, Secretary of the Treasury Hamilton, Secretary of State Jefferson. and Really, they fought each other with a, a venom that would make, you know, some of the staunchest partisans of today blush. And this is, you know, we're sometimes apt to picture the early republic as a time when these these wise patriots in their powdered wigs and their knee breeches and so on, they, they come together to rationally determine the country's best interest. But in fact, this period is marked by a really unusually high level of acrimony and just plain nastiness, where they regard each other, the two sides regarded each other and treat each other, not just as opponents who who advocate the wrong policies, but as enemies of the Constitution, enemies of the principles of the revolution, right? So the Republicans generally saw the Federalists as 
quasi-monarchists, you know, tools of the British crown. The Federalists tended to see the Republicans as Jacobins bent on instituting mob rule. Um, so basically every, every political debate, you have cries of treason, um, fears of foreign plots, physical violence is very commonplace. And so this, you know, as you might expect, given his concerns about partisanship, this, uh, as time goes on, Washington's confidence in America's future kind of declines as the partisanship emerges and, and becomes more um, entrenched. It gets much worse over the course of his second term and then re- really reaches a sort of peak during his retirement. He, you know, he only lives two and a half years beyond the, the presidency. Um, but in the midst of the, the, the undeclared quasi-war with France, you know, you have members of Congress brawling on the floor of the House of Representatives with canes and fire pokers. Um, you have violent mobs roaming the streets of Philadelphia, which was in the Capitol, um, that induced President Adams to smuggle arms into the executive mansion as a precautionary measure. So, you know, many people thought the country was on the verge of civil war. And, you know, Washington's letters during this period are just filled with these premonitions that, that, you know, confusion and anarchy are on the horizon, that the government just can't last that much longer. Um, There's one that I, I uh, like that I quote that where he um, tells one correspondent that if the Republican and by this time he's basically a Federalist I, I I think at least earlier in his career he did a pretty good job of, of straddling the two parties but by the time of his retirement it's hard to make a case that he, he hadn't drifted into the Federalist camp so he says at one point to one correspondent that if the Republicans were to set up a broomstick and call it a true son of liberty or a Democrat or whatever name suits their purpose it would command their votes in toto and so by this point he's convinced it's not just Congress or, or you know, the cabinet or whatever. The American people more generally had become thoroughly and irretrievably partisan. And he had always insisted since his days at the Continental Army, at the head of the Continental Army, that, you know, Republican government just couldn't survive for long under that th- those kinds of conditions. And so this is why I suggest at one point that in, in some ways his political career was the reverse of his military career in the sense that, you know, he won every election unanimously, of course. He got his way on basically every policy dispute. But he failed in, in what he saw as his most important job, which is to prevent partisanship from overrunning the country. And so I say that in politics, unlike in the revolution, he won most of the battles, but then lost the larger war. And and again, we also have this, you know, sort of romantic notion of Washington holding the country together. Um, and even the title of your book is about the, the chair that he sat in at the Constitutional Convention that you note that so many have noted Franklin was one, unsure if that was a rising sun or a setting sun. And you conclude at the end of your book that it is, in fact, a rising sun, as Franklin did, um, but that it's it was, you know, sort of this tumultuousness that you couldn't quite make heads or tails of which direction things were going and that Washington kind of died in despair of that. That's right. And we, you know, look, I I don't think the heroic image of him, him holding the country together is entirely wrong for the, at least those first few years, right? The fact that he managed to keep Hamilton and Jefferson in the same cabinet for whatever it was, four or five years. I mean, that's a remarkable feat given how much they hated each other. Um, and so I don't, you know, it's hard to imagine, frankly, the country surviving those, you know, fragile, chaotic first years without him at the helm that, you know, it's just amazing how much his contemporaries, revered him and, and trusted him. Um, I sometimes, you know, when I, I 
teach my students Rousseau and, and we talk about the general will and it's really hard to pin down the general will and so forth. But I sometimes say, you know, if there ever was a general will, it's that should be Americans believe that Washington should be president, right? Like this is something everybody agreed on. Um, and that's a big resource to have when you're, you're getting this thing off the ground. So I don't think it's entirely, you know, of course, Washington's a very flawed man in a lot of ways, enslaving people, et cetera, et cetera. But look, you know, the having him there, I, I think, you know, lots of historians say that he's the one really indispensable figure of the founding period. And I think that's right. Um, so for all of his, you know, disappointments and so forth, he also played this, this really crucial role. And, and you, you follow the chapter, obviously you say you, you're sort of align the chapters in terms of the, the, the point where each person, we, each founder died. And the next person who died is Hamilton in the famous duel with Burr, because we've all now sung all the tunes to Lin-Manuel Miranda. We have them embedded in our memory. Um, and we've all seen the show a couple of times because not that many people write musicals about the founding. Um, and when you teach the founding, it's really useful. Um, and so Hamilton you know, had had this important role, not only at the Constitutional Convention, but, you know, in defending the Constitution and advocating for its passage. Um, and yet he was really skeptical about whether it would stand up um, and if it had enough power. That's right. So, so yeah, so he's... Um... Yeah, as I've got already kind of said, he's the principal author of the greatest defense of the Constitution ever written, The Federalist. Um, he arguably did, as Washington's Treasury Secretary, he arguably did more than any other single individual to give the government that emerged from the Constitution sort of shape and substance in these early years. Um, but as he suggests, he's in fact among the most disappointed in the Constitution, even at the very outset. So at the, the end of the Philadelphia Convention, he basically told his fellow delegates, look, I'm going to defend this is better than nothing. But he, he told them that, at least as Madison's notes have it, he said that no man's ideas were further from the plan, meaning the Constitution, than his were. Um, and so, yes, the, the main problem, if the main theme for Washington is worries about parties and partisanship, for Hamilton, the theme is that he didn't think that the government they'd framed would have sufficient vigor or energy, as he liked to call it, um, particularly in relation to the state governments. And so this is, you know, he's... Um, at, at the extreme end of the spectrum on the founders here, right? Some of the founders, like Jefferson, saw the exercise of, of governmental power, especially at the national level, as almost an inherent infringement on liberty. Um, Hamilton took basically the opposite view. He always thought it was, you know, vesting too little power in the government was at least as dangerous as vesting too much in it. That a weak government was at least as th great a threat to liberty as a strong one, which he thought had been proven during the. Revolutionary War, right, when the, the Continental Congress couldn't effectively levy taxes or raise troops, and so the, the army was perpetually undermanned, undersupplied, um, it was proven by the feckless government created by the Articles of Confederation. So he really thought energy was the essence of good government. And so he spent most of the 1790s trying to strengthen the government in, in basically every way that he could dream up. Right. So as the nation's first Treasury Secretary, he develops this sweeping financial program that, that he thought would and did help to put the country on a sound economic footing. Um, he is a pivotal member of the cabinet. He fought to expand presidential power in you know, both foreign affairs and domestic affairs, particularly while Washington, the, the 
great war hero Washington's in office and it's sort of harder for people to object too much. Um, later in the decade, he's the effective commander of the nation's army during the quasi war. He tries to capitalize on this to build up the military and, you know, so on and so forth. Basically, he does everything he can and he does a lot during these years, but he's never convinced that he'd done enough. So, so Jefferson and by this point, Madison, the Republicans are constantly there fighting him, hounding him, um, preventing him from realizing the full extent of his vision. And so um, he never feel like he's feel, felt like he'd done enough. And then, of course, to his utter dismay in 1800, his arch enemy Jefferson uh, and the Republicans sweep into office with a mandate to pare down the government's power still further. So, you know, he thinks it's already too weak and now it's going to become weaker still. And so he's really basically distraught by this point. He thinks the government's just going to become weaker. The country's going to become more vulnerable. Um, So in 1802, he writes this, I think, really touching letter to Governor Morris, where he laments that, you know, after all he'd done, after so many years to try to make the government work, it just wasn't going to happen. Um, He went so far as to call the Constitution a frail and worthless fabric and said that every day proves to me more and more that this American world wasn't made for me. And so, you know, by the end of his life, the, the premature end of his life, by the time of the, the, the famous duel, he had basically concluded that this already weak government was only going to get weaker still over time and and that little but disillusion and disorder could be expected for the, the foreseeable future. And and again, you have this this triumph, uh, trilogy of of um, federalists, if we put Washington in that camp. Um, with Adams, who, as we also know, wasn't great pals with Hamilton, even though they were sort of on the same side. Um, and Adams, you know, Adams wrote a ton of letters also. It's like even, it's almost impossible to figure out which letters to read because there are so many of them. Um, but you, you did sort of find a theme that he had with regard to his concern, about the capacity of the government to work. Right. So the theme for him, and I think the overriding source of of Adams's pessimism was what he perceived to be the lack of virtue among the American people. So there there are lots of reasons he might have become disillusioned. He's just an sort of irascible, curmudgeonly guy, although very funny too, I think much funnier than any of the other figures were. Um, But he hated political parties almost as much as Washington did. He worried about the ills of sort of democracy or populism almost as much as Hamilton. Obviously, unlike the two of them, he lives long into the 19th century. He lives long enough to see his his erstwhile political opponents, the Republicans, basically, you know, gain ascendancy over the political scene for two and a half decades. But it's, you know, what I think is the real theme to his worries is what he sees as a lack of virtue, that he thinks that Republican government depends and I, I'll, look, all of them thought this to some degree, but I think this is even more important to him than most. The Republican government depends not just on the right institutions, but also on the people's character. That unless the citizens exhibited a sense of civic virtue, duty, patriotism, unless they're willing to put the public good ahead of their own, um, Republican government couldn't work, right? The popular self-government would just be an insoluble clash of conflicting interests. But for all that, he was never entirely persuaded that the American people had the necessary sense of duty, um, starting as early as the the revolution itself. You know, he talks about, oh, there's just too much rascality and finality and corruption and avarice and ambition. You know, again, very colorful and and sometimes very funny correspondence. But he says, there's just too much of all this in America to, to support a republic. And 
you know, he holds this view off and on for a half century. I mean, there, there are, of course, ups and downs. Um, right around the time of the Constitutional Convention, he, he's, of course, in London at the time, not at the convention, but he, he writes this sort of magnum opus, The Defense of the Constitutions of Government of the United States, where, where you know, he toys with the idea, can the right structure, can the right institutions make up for the lack of virtue? Um, but pretty soon he goes back and says, no, it really can't. Um, you know, there's also kind of a brief respite, a brief moment of, of um, relative optimism during the in his retirement during the War of 1812 in the midst of the sort of patriotic fervor unleashed by that, that war. But really, throughout these, you know, 50 years or so, his, his correspondence just dwells on this theme of his, his fellow citizens' lack of virtue and hence lack of fitness for Republican government. So he's, in some ways, he's one of the first great critics of the idea of American exceptionalism, right? This notion that the American people are somehow innately more virtuous or more fit for democracy than other peoples are. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, his disillusion started, it, it, sorry, his disillusionment started much earlier than it did for any of these other fig- figures. So this is before the constitution was even a twinkle in the framers' eyes and yeah, lasted for basically 50 years. And and the kind of um, putting the responsibility on the people was also a theme that Jefferson had, but it wasn't one that he necessarily lost faith in the same way Adams does, um, because Jefferson's sort of ideal of agrarian Republican virtue is a bit different. But Jefferson, as you note, has some great concerns about the sectional fissures that that come to ultimately divide the United States. Um, can you explain? I mean, Jefferson is such a complicated founder in so many ways uh, because we do wrap him in the Declaration of Independence, um, and he had this great commitment to small government. Um, and then when he was president, he was hardly a small government president. Um, And he lived a long time. So he sort of lived through so much of the early days of the Republic, commented on it. Um, Where is his particular pessimism and despair? Right. So, so, right. To to connect with one of the first things you said about Jefferson. I mean, look, I, I think his disillusionment is far and away the most surprising of the bunch insofar as, you know, we, rightly think of him as an inveterate optimist. For most of his life, he has this unshakable confidence in the ultimate wisdom and goodness of the American people. Um, And he retains that for a long time. Um, Really, I mean, again, there's always ups and downs, but I think um, his optimism lasts at least until, you know, I I don't know if you want to put a date on it, something like 1816, um, the the 18-teens. but then even he loses heart. Even even the the congenital optimist loses his faith in the American experiment. Um, I think you know in the book I run through a number of different reasons for this. The what he sees as the usurpations of the Supreme Court and and the you know raid for banks and so forth. But really, I think the key one and the theme that I develop most fully is um, his worries about the sectional divide between North and South that came to light during. Um, the the Missouri crisis of 1819 to 1821 or so. So this is the first great conflict over the expansion of slavery in America. Um, and, you know, I don't need to go into all the details of the episode, but the, the bottom line is that the, the mere fact that some Northern politicians had the temerity to oppose the extension of slavery into Missouri 
was enough to cause Jefferson to just absolutely lose it. So there's a famous letter to uh, John Holmes where he says that this controversy, like a fire bell in the night, awakened and filled me with terror. I considered it once as the knell of the Union. Um, and he goes on, he basically prophecies the path to the Civil War. He just says, look, when you have this geographic line dividing the country with a deep, deep moral difference separating the two sides, it's never going to go away. Every new event's just going to, you know, etch that line deeper and deeper. And he concludes the letter with what's, I, I think, just an unforgettable expression of regret. I say unforgettable and I don't have it in front of me, but I'll, I'll uh, you know, paraphrase it. He says something like, I'm now going to die believing that everything we fought for in 1776 is going to be thrown away by the unwise, unworthy passions of the, 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 the current generation. My only consolation is that I'm not going to live myself to weep over the, the loss of the Republic. Right. And so you'd be hard pressed to compose a clearer, more forceful articulation of disillusionment from that. And again, from Jefferson, of all people. And this is just one of many. He writes, you know, dozens of letters um, during the Missouri crisis, just each one more hysterical and apocalyptic than the last. Um, you know, I, I don't know how far you want to go into it. He, he pins the blame for this entirely on anti-slavery Northerners. He thinks they're committing treason against the Constitution, treason against the principles of Republican government. Um, and his views on slavery, of course, are always notoriously complex. I think by the end of their life, they're pretty, by the end of his life, they're pretty unambiguously reprehensible. But, uh, you know, we could talk about that for another hour. <laughs> and, and and again, it's, you know, it's it's interesting to see that this is what Jefferson sees as the rupture, which of course does become the rupture. So you're right in sort of saying that he prophesies what's going to happen, even though he'd been so committed to the way that the union could be perfected. He's always talking about how the constitution, while not great in a lot of ways, it can be fixed. I mean, maybe not by the bloods of patriots and tyrants, but maybe by the amendment process. And, you know, and he makes his, his sort of statement when he, he goes forward with the Louisiana purchase that this is, you know, again, something that's going to help and better the union. So that the fact that this is his, his despair comes from slavery. Yes, which, you know, in some ways had haunted him his whole life, right? I mean, in some ways, that, that's the, the, you know, million pound gorilla in the room that, that had always been there that he, he had always worried about. I mean, his views on slavery changed pretty dramatically where, you know, early on, you know, he fought a reasonably forceful battle against it, at least in the political realm where he tries to, you know, write some gradual emancipation laws for Virginia. He tries to ban slavery from all the Western territories, whereas by the end, he's positively advocating the expansion of slavery into new territory. I mean, so in some ways he does a, a total 180 on this, this, um, um, on this issue in, in what I, again, think is a pretty reprehensible way. Um, but yeah, it, but look, the, and that's not the only one, right? So I also talk about how he has these worries about consolidation. He, he thinks that, um, you know, he's, he'd always been a, a um, kind of states' rights or if we want to put it in that term. But, you know, he became an increasingly ardent and even fanatical states' rights or in his old age. And um, even when it was his federal fellow Republicans who are in power, he, he thinks they're basically little better than Federalists in a different guise. And so in those last couple of years, I mean, it gets to the point where he thinks that a, a breakup of the union might soon be not just inevitable, but desirable. He thinks that, that you know, dissolving the union is better than than 
excessive what he calls consolidation. So, um, yeah, he's kind of even after the Missouri crisis is is um, kind of over, he's he's kept in the depths of despair, you know, in his final years. And and the 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 last founder that you spend the most time with, and you do have a, a short chapter on some of the other founders, but I really want to talk about Madison because Madison's own opinion of human nature is one that's not as sort of lofty um, as say Jefferson's or or you know even on his better days the idea of character and virtue that Adams can sort of see that he wants human beings to have. Madison's always been a little bit skeptical. Um, and, you know, I sort of talked to my students about how Madison maybe thinks most of us are a little crazy. Um, and, and you know, when he writes the Federalist Papers, he's, maybe we need to manage some of that nuttiness. But that he is a more optimistic founder through his life, and he doesn't despair quite as much as the others. Um, which I found really interesting in in your analysis. Can you explain a bit about that? Yeah, I'll try to. So, yeah, I, look, because of the the reasonably dark view of human nature that you rightly attribute to him, I'll be honest. When I started this project, I expected to find that he had became disillusioned too, right? And he just lived so long. He lives until 1836. So this is most of the way through Andrew Jackson's second term as president. He saw so much, frankly, pretty bad stuff. You know, I assumed he'd be disgusted by it all, especially by the kind of populist demagoguery represented by Jackson. And so I assumed I'd be writing this book about these five disillusioned figures. But as I read through his letters and other writings from this later period, I, I knew his writings during the founding reasonably well. But as I read this stuff from much later in life, frankly, the evidence just wasn't there. On the contrary, to the end of his life, he remained surprisingly, sometimes even defiantly optimistic about America's constitutional order. Um, And there were, you know, as with anyone, there there are, you know, ebbs and flows. So during the nullification crisis of 1832, 1833, he expresses some real worries. But, you know, for the most part, he remains, um, you know, steadfast in his belief that this is going to work. And so, yeah, I devote a couple chapters to him at the end asking kind of why he's such an outlier, right? Why he retained his confidence in, in the nation and the government that they'd founded when, when so many others didn't, right? Not just the four that we've discussed here, but most of the rest of the founders too became so disillusioned. Um, now, the obvious answer might seem to be, um, I think it's wrong, but the obvious answer might seem to be, well, he's the father of the Constitution, right? He got what he wanted out of the Philadelphia Convention and remained satisfied with the result. But that's definitely not right because he too, at least at first, he too regarded the Constitution as pretty radically defective. Um, we, we sometimes describe the Constitution as embodying Madisonian principles. But in fact, he'd lost more battles than he won at the convention, including a number of those he deemed most important. Um, by one scholar's count, this is Forrest McDonald's count, uh, of the 71 proposals that he moved, seconded, or unequivocally supported that summer in Philadelphia, he lost on 40 of them. So a pretty clear majority he ended up losing on. And so by the end of the convention, he's pretty profoundly disheartened. But he soon became reconciled to it, I think genuinely reconciled to it in a way that, say, Hamilton, his, his co-author in The Federalist, never quite did. Um, and so, yeah, so the question is how we how we explain this. Um, part of it, I suggest, I think is just a matter of personality or temperament. He, his contemporaries 
consistently describe him as measured and dispassionate and even tempered, um, almost maddeningly so, right? Even when he's president in, in the Capitol, the executive mansion are ransacked and put to the torch by British troops. And there are these rumblings of secession pervading New England. And he's like, oh, no, everything will be fine. Um, so he's just a more even keeled guy than the others were. And I think this has probably contributed to his lack of despair. Um, another part of the answer that's, that's connected to this one and connected to what, what you said in your, your question is that, you know, I think he never had the uh, somewhat naive and or grandiose hopes that the other founders had for, for America and its government. He just had lower expectations for what's politically possible, right? So he never expected that the American people would always surmount partisanship like Washington or always surmount selfishness like Adams. Um, he never really hoped that the, the nation would one day play this grand role on the world stage and, and compete with the European imperial powers on their own terms, the way the Hamilton did. Nor did he even really, it, for all that he shared with Jefferson, did he really have this vision of these virtuous yeoman farther, farmers getting together and, and wisely managing their political affairs on a, a, a local level. Um, so he had, you know, lower hopes and that, you know, meant that he was somewhat less likely to be disappointed in those hopes, right, in, in what America ultimately became. Um, I, I discuss a few others in the book. Let me mention here just one more factor that I think went into his his enduring confidence, which is that, you know, by the end of his life, he's he's the last of the fathers, as he's sometimes called. Madison had already seen the country endure so much, right? He had seen by that point America's constitutional order, whether the Alien and Sedition Acts and the War of 1812 and the Missouri Crisis and on and on. And I think this led him to believe or at least to hope that it could weather a good deal more, right? So that the more the nation endured, the more durable it seemed to him. Um, so those are my guesses, right? I mean, it's always a matter of hypothesis asking this kind of question, what, what motivated his confidence, but th those are my best guesses. And, um, and, and that seems a very reasonable conclusion given, you know, his commitment also to the idea that the constitution needed to be established and stabilized so that it could actually like put down roots. Um, and, and that we could then have some faith in it, um, as people who are being governed by it. Um, I always talk to my students about his argument with regard to stability so that we can all be good citizens. So we know what the laws are. If they keep changing the constitution, it's hard to know. Um, and I certainly think that Madison seemed to have some idea that the longer it was in place, maybe it would work out. Um, you, you make an interesting sort of comment early in the book about the fact that while you're talking about the disillusionment, pessimism, despair of the of the founders, or at least five of them, that you're not really sort of looking at whether or not they were depressed human beings, um, but that you have to sort of take into account the fact that they had different personalities and that they had different inclinations. Um, so there's this little nod towards their mental health. Um, can you explain a little bit about why you felt the need to talk about that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess it was just to stave off the the worry that, you know, uh, I, I'm sure, you know, people have moments of pessimism or, or you know, moments of, of you know, personal. And look, all of them did, right? Adams had all these t moments where he he's kind of wallows in self-pity and, oh, people are never going to appreciate my contributions to the revolution in the way that they should and so on. Um, but I, I guess I was trying to suggest that these are really, they're not, they're not uh, solely these kind of personal 
momentary feelings that the their their disillusionment in all of the cases was really fairly long lasting at least you know eight or ten years and the shortest one uh, um, being Jefferson um, they're really connected some to some of their deepest hopes and fears about what America would be kind of long-standing hopes and fears about you know again partisanship and virtue and the like um, so I was just trying to stave off I, you know you could write a book where um, you could take one or two moments of pessimism and, and really press hard on them and and um, and turn them into something they're not and I guess I was just trying to stave that off from the outset and say, this is a really enduring thing, again, really closely connected to their, their deepest hopes and fears. And, and of the sort of lesser founders, you have this short sort of interlude um, where you say that they, a lot of what you found in the, the big five, you also saw in them. Um, can you talk just like one or two examples about what you saw among these other participants, mostly in the constitutional convention, um, that also sort of was in line with what you were seeing with the, the bigger named founders. Sure. Okay. So one or two. So I'll, I'll pick Governor Morris as one of my favorites. Actually, my, my current book project is on Governor Morris, who I think is a totally unre- underrated founder who, you know, who wrote the Constitution. Every more American school child can tell you who wrote the Declaration of Independence, but nobody knows who wrote the Constitution. And Governor Morris, as much as anyone, wrote it. Um, but by the end of his life, you know, he's so, he's a diehard Federalist. And, and by the end of his life, given the, the ascendancy of, of the Republicans and the War of 1812, he essentially advocates the secession of the North from the, from the Union. Um, he's the most staunch anti-slavery figure at the Philadelphia Convention. He gives a really rousing, you know, all the abolitionist speech, really morally condemning slavery in these very moving terms. And, you know, he he saw the country in some ways in, in, in terms of a almost Manichaean dichotomy where you've got a f- system based on commerce and free labor in the North and an agrarian system based on slavery in the South as good versus evil. And he thought evil was winning. He thought, you know, the Virginia dynasty and, and the, the political power of the, the antebellum South, he thought, you know, the, the slave theocracy was winning. And and again, it got to the point where he was advocating the secession of the North from the Union. Um, I guess an, uh, another one who lived a long time and, and another very famous one is John Marshall. Um, he too, you know, he's does a great deal to shape the government from his seat as Supreme Court as Chief Justice, right? He, he does so much. I mean, of course, he's fighting with Jefferson much of the way and, and whatever, but, you know, wow, he accomplishes a lot. Um, but then he too lives to well into the 1830s. You know, he sees the nullification crisis coming and he says, oh, this can't really happen, right? Nobody could seriously say that a state could nullify federal law, right? That, that's just a recipe for, for blowing up the Constitution. But then when it became clear that, you know, people really meant it. There were a lot of people who really thought that way, you know, he writes to his fellow Supreme Court Justice Joseph Story and says, you know, the Constitution can't last. It's, it's been, you know, prolonged by miracles thus far, and, and it just can't last. It's, you know, it's going to be a dead letter. Um, and so, you know, a lot of these are really surprising. We don't think of these figures as, as ending up in this place, and yet really almost all of them do. Uh, and this, the sectionalism and the, the original sin of slavery also seems to be so much a part of some of that pessimism. Yeah, I mean, if, more for northern, <laughs> northerners than, than southerners in, in lots of ways. But yeah, no, for many of them, that it's, it's really bound up with that, that question too, yeah. 
Um, and so you mentioned that you are working on a book on Governor Morris, who, as you say, and I agree with you, is somebody who needs more attention paid. Uh, maybe Lin-Manuel Miranda can write about him too. Um, so let me just interject there and say, you know, he's Hamilton's best friend. He's there at his deathbed when Hamilton dies and he doesn't even get a bit role in the musical. It's really a travesty. And so what is it that you are writing about Governor Morris? So it's about basically his role at the Constitutional Convention and his constitutional vision. So I, there's a chapter early on that's a kind of biographical chapter because he's such a colorful character. He's this peg-legged ladies' man, really wicked sense of humor, lives a really colorful and eventful life. Um, he becomes the, the minister to France after the convention, you know, follows in the footsteps of Franklin and Jefferson. He's the only diplomat to remain in, in France throughout the terror Um so, you know, he lives this really fascinating life in a, a whole variety of ways. Um, and there have been some good biographies about him in, in recent years. So I, I only spend one chapter on that. But the book is really about his, what I call his constitutional vision. So I kind of go through, you know, the role he played in Philadelphia. He spoke more often than any other delegate. He proposed more motions than any other delegate. He had more motions accepted than any other delegate. And he wrote the final draft for the Committee of Style at the end. He wrote the preamble basically from scratch. He reorganized the whole document. It was 23 articles. He pared it down to seven. Um, he changed a lot of the wording in really consequential ways. Uh, the, the dean of Georgetown Law, a guy named Bill Trainer, has a new uh, a law review article coming out about this that's, that's quite good. Um, just the kind of uh, the consequential nature of some of the the shifts in wording and, and even punctuation and the like that that Morris made, um, and so my book is about that, not just his penning of the Constitution, but also you know just the arguments that he made at the convention. Um, he was really one of the leading figures to empower the presidency. He had really interesting vision of that. He wanted the Senate to be an aristocratic body that would be chosen by the president and serve for life, but because he thought that would curb the political influence of the rich in interesting ways. Um, he, you know, again, takes this very strong stand against slavery. And so it's, yeah, trying to flesh out his his vision. He's one of the prime, he, he, he and James Wilson are the two foremost advocates of a direct election of the president. And then when they couldn't get that, the two foremost architects of the electoral college. So there's lots of really interesting things in, in, his, um, in his role that are, yeah, I, I think worth worth bringing to people's attention. Well, I hope that you will let me talk to you about Governor Morris when Absolutely. you finish the book. I would love to read it and have you back on the New Books and Political Science podcast. <laughs> uh, let's, let's pencil it in. All right. Sounds good. Um, I want to thank Dennis Rasmussen for joining me today to talk about Fears of a Setting Sun, The Disillusionment of America's Founders, published by Princeton University Press in 2021. I assume one can buy this at Princeton University Press's website. Is there a brick and mortar store with an online presence you would like to give a shout out to? No, no, none, none in particular. Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> That's fine. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure to talk to you about the founders. Thanks, Lily. This is fun.